0: You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker.
1: This is Tracy Mears joining me on Conversations with Shonda. Tracy, will you do a quick introduction of yourself before we dive in?
0: Sure. Uh, My name is Tracy Mears. I'm a professor at Yale Law School. I also co-founded and direct, along with Tom Tyler, the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School, which is a research center that focuses on the social science of justice, among other things. We work with students, we work with researchers, uh, we try to work with institutions on the ground doing the work, but also try to advance theories of transformation. Um, And I uh, work more directly with Chanda um, at the Joyce Foundation, where we both serve as directors on the board.
1: Yes, we do. I'm so happy to serve there with you and learn from you and grow with you and give back to our region in that way. One of the ways that we bonded is, one, you're just a great person, but over all the things that we're experiencing here, I met you and I don't know, you know, George Floyd, everything happened. And I just think I just reached out like, what the hell Tracy? Like, I don't know which way is up and which way is down. And I guess my first question, because you are, you know, working across this country is what is the conversation about Minnesota right now? Hmm.
0: I think Minnesota is in the middle of a maelstrom, which, you know, is stating the obvious, but in the context of thinking about transformation and change, Y'all have experienced a number of very high profile judicial cases that people focus on understandably in the context of trying to achieve some kind of accountability for individual wrongs. Each one of which represents a systemic problem that people understandably want to try to change in some way and are struggling to connect up, whether and how these individual cases affect that system, um, impact that system in some way, whether these individual cases are part of the journey of transformation. And so each case is important, of course, you know, it's it, it's hard to deny, obviously, the meaning of guilty verdicts to the families who have lost loved ones. And then at the same time, you know, those of us who think more and more wonky ways about policy, we see, you know, we expect all the ways in which those cases, once you set aside the role they play in accountability and back in acknowledgement of harm, <laughs> right? It's predictable to us the ways in which focusing on those particular cases or whatever happens in those particular cases ultimately won't be that meaningful. That's that's not a surprise, right? But how to figure out how to talk about that in a context in which people are understandably focused on those individual cases and. People don't really have the capacity, don't have the training, don't have the perspective, you know, to think about all the things that are necessary to really have transformation um, of these systems. That's a really, really difficult <laughs> Uh, situation to be in, especially when you keep having case after case after case, right? because you <laughs> as a mm-hmm. as a person who you know thinks about all the ways in which the puzzle pieces fit together, you know you're going to be focusing on institutions of criminal legal processing, but you're also going to be focusing on um, housing justice and you're also going to be focusing on education and you're also going to be talking about food insecurity, all of which of course is a part of addressing the safety deprivation. That so many citizens of Minneapolis and St. Paul, I guess, is still in your purview, maybe, mm-hmm. um, are experiencing. And, you know, trying to get people to focus on that <laughs> complicated interlocking um, network, even while the media and folks are, are focused on particular cases and individual names is so, so hard. I mean, I was talking for a while, I'm sorry, but like, I do think. That that's kind of the essence of of the difficulty. Why you can say things like I don't know up from down, you know which which way to go, right? Yeah. After
1: each of our notable cases, people want to act. We move quickly and we make decisions. People want to understand the issue, and we just we just move. We're seeing that. Now we saw that after George Floyd, we've seen it after Philandos to some extent with uh, pretextual stops. And then we had Dante Wright pretext stop. We've seen it after George Floyd to some extent in the Breonna Taylor case with no-knock warrants. And now we have it with mere lock. So we're moving quickly. We thought that we had a decision on no-lock warrants. It obviously was not the case. And so now we're moving and we have a moratorium on that. I don't know. I don't have confidence that that's a solution. It feels to me like it'll go to a quick knock don't warrants, something that could be equally as dangerous. Do you have an opinion on, on that? Yeah. Um, I know I'm stressing you out.
0: <laughs> no, you're not stressing me out. It, I, I'm trying to, because we actually have time here. You and I do, you know, in contrast to, Often the, the the situations in which I have these conversations where I have to try to figure out, okay, how can I get an important point, <laughs> convey it in five minutes, because that's what I get. And, and that's what someone's going to, all, all the time, they're going to have to listen to what I have to say. So, you know, I do have an opinion on the no-knock warrant, but I can tell you, and I'll I'll tell you what I think in a minute. But it's precisely this issue, Chanda, that an incident happens. We want to do something about the dynamics that led to the incident. So we're, we're right there. It's not that different from, um, from violence, you know, what what I'm going to call private violence, private in the sense that it's not involving an officer. you know, it's just in, just <laughs> interpersonal violence between, uh, individuals um often in race class subjugated communities an incident happens and we're like, okay, we're gonna you know we're gonna react. we're gonna do something about that and there are things actually that we can do about that situation. absolutely. So too there are things we can do right now about the no knock warrant situation. absolutely. but once we step back, if we're gonna address police violence, And if we're going to address violence among individuals and think about both of these problems as just at at its most general level as safety deprivation, right? The way you would address that is not to, you know, take any individual incident and respond to it. I mean, you know, this is kind of an old tired analogy, but it's, it's like, it would be as if all of our medicine Was people being treated in the emergency room? Nobody thinks that that's the right way to do it. Nobody, at least I hope no one does. Right? You know, some of the things that we, you know, the more sophisticated things that we do aren't emergency room strategies. They're like having a specialist, having a specialist for everything, you know, having an endocrinologist and, you know, having an orthopedic surgeon, which is, kind of a thing you can do, sort of, you know, I think that might be one way to think about the more particular problems, having someone who's very specialized, focusing on how to design a system of of warrants for searches so that they are done better. Yeah, we could, we could do that too. But the really ideal way, if we're still continuing with this public health analogy, is to be much more general and much more preventive, just keep taking it back, right? You know, what would, you know, a system of preventing violence, you know, addressing the fact that so many people experience safety deprivation. What it would it look like if we addressed it as just the way we address wellness of which your general practitioner is a part, but only a part. You um, you. know you, go to the dentist twice a year, you see your general practitioner, you eat healthy food and you have access to healthy food and you have good shelter and you exercise and you do all of those things, right? That, we don't have a way of thinking about that systematically on the safety side, we we really don't. And it's hard to get us to have those kinds of conversations when we're lurching from, you know, situation to situation whether the situation is Derek chauvin killing George Floyd or another situation of of, of a knock warrant. So to, to answer your question specifically, yeah, I think it's very likely that if you ban that, there you know that the response in some cases is going to be well they'll knock first right And they'll still do it and until there's serious attention paid, you know, like by all of the relevant actors. So, you know, you'd only get a no-knock warrant when a judge allows that to happen. So maybe the judges, apart from whether it's a no-knock, you know, should actually really be seriously examining when they're issuing warrants. They don't really. We know they don't. Here's an analogy. All right. So, these these warrants are Fourth Amendment warrants for which um, the judge has to find probable cause to believe that the evidence is going to be found at, at the location. And the way that works is a cop goes to the judge with an affidavit and a warrant. The judge reads it and issues it. Um, but there's a whole other model um, for electronic communications on the federal on the federal side, actually state side too, for wiretaps. And if you look at the wiretap model, it is much more stringent, much more stringent than a regular search warrant. You go to a judge, it's time limited. They, um, there are certain notice provisions you have to give to the person who is subject to the warrant. There's actual supervisor requirements. It's very, very different actually uh, from a regular uh, Fourth Amendment warrant, like, you know, whether and when we're going to actually have, you know, those kinds of, you know, deep policy wonky-wonk discussions about the kinds of warrants that are at issue here. You know, I don't know, but that's the kind of that's that's what it would take, I think.
1: And Tracy, who would who would lead that type of conversation? Who's responsible for that?
0: Well, I mean, I think the people who are demanding justice and accountability could be part of it, but that gets back to where we were talking at the the front end about what people know to ask for and what they understand. And also that thing that I just talked about is a kind of medium term fix of the kind of policing that we have now. And so people understandably don't want to pay, you know, they don't want to exert all of their effort and attention and energy on that, they would rather understandably exert their energy and attention on the longer term justice project, which makes good sense. You know, the, the thing that I was talking about before the this, what it would look like to have a state system devoted to really addressing safety concerns that people have, you know, what that would look like, you know, that's the police transformation conversation what I think many people are getting at when they're talking about defund the police, right? What I think, I mean, or even what some people are getting at when they're talking about abolishing the the police. To my mind, what they often mean are are they're talking about uh, abolishing the policing service as we know it. Um, I don't think, but maybe some people believe this, um, that they believe that the state should not be involved at all in the project of addressing safety deprivation of citizens. I know I don't believe that. I don't believe that the state should not be involved in that. State has an obligation to address safety deprivation. The question is the form that the state takes (laughs) to to address it. Yeah. Can you
1: see a future with no police?
0: Can I see a future with no police as we know them? Absolutely. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, when you say, can I, do you, (laughs) are you asking me to make a prediction or are you asking me to imagine what that state form could look like? I mean, maybe both. Like, I mean, I, Tracy, I honestly
1: have a hard time like envisioning it. Right. And I think that's been really conflicting for me because I both see sort of the rise of crime, right? We sit here yesterday in our community, we buried, you know, D Hill, one of our football players was senseless, act of crime. He was, a you know, a great child doing what he needed to do. And someone randomly murdered him. And there are senseless acts of violence, right? People don't feel safe yeah. in their community. And we're seeing the rise of gun violence and violent acts and carjackings. And there are people that are living in fear as a result of that. While we're talking about re- and scope of what police are responsible for. And I think those things are coming into conflict for many people um, at a time where, where violent crime are on the rise. And so it's difficult for me in this context to see it, although I can't see the reimagining, right? I, I want to see the end of what has happened, right? Black men dying, people dying. That should not die with you know their interactions, the policing, the disrespectful interactions, the racist sort of interactions, the the warrior mentality. Like I see all those things gone, but I just can't envision, and I just can't. I I don't know if it's if I just have a block in that or what.
0: Well, I I, I think the first step is trying to imagine the possibility that the state could respond in some other way to violence that does not entail only (laughs) exclusively armed emergency first responders. And notice I said respond because again, right, we're talking about a certain set of incidents and then there's going to be a response to that incident. And then there's a question of, well, what can we do to make sure that that doesn't happen? What are all the things? And I think once you start thinking about that, what are all the things that we can do to make sure that that just doesn't happen in the first place? It's pretty easy to imagine a whole bunch of state responses that don't entail exclusively armed first responders, right? Like you know, and your community foundation, I'm sure funds lots of community organizations and investments that Pat Sharkey, the sociologist has shown are critical actually and to preventing um, violent incidents and actually do so more effectively and at greater scale than simply armed emergency first responders. Okay, so once you get to that point, then you say okay well if we want to do that at scale then you need resources and you understand that the resources involved in doing that can't simply be provided by the community itself that's why i'm always saying like the state has to be involved there's no world in which the community itself can do it and i'm including your foundation (laughs) in that community you don't have enough resources And then I I would make a normative argument that you shouldn't have to, because part of the reason why these spaces um, exist in the way that they are, such that the violence takes place in the first place, is because of years, decades of disinvestment, which my colleague Elizabeth Hinton shows so brilliantly in her book, America on Fire, right? All of the which she details the up the uprisings after um that the the kerner commission detailed were about people in race class subjugated communities saying okay it's 1968 we you know when are we actually going to get the community investments that we were promised right when are we going to get that Mm -hmm. and that's over 50 years ago Mm -hmm. now and they still haven't gotten the investments And the investments that have happened have been in, a lot of the state investments anyway, have been in armed emergency first responders, not exclusively, but disproportionately. Mm -hmm. Which is why she argues in her first book, you know, the war on poverty turned into the war on on crime. And, And note, I'm not... This is not a. I'm not making a root causes argument here. You know, I'm talking about what we can expect from relative investments, and you know what Vashla Weaver and 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 Joe Sauce call, um, you know, the 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 right arm of the state, you know, rather than the left arm. On the one hand, um, and lack of investments and all of these other things. So you, there's also a, uh, you know, there's a, there's a catch up game that, that is also entailed here, right?
1: For the listeners that have concern and interest in seeing policing change or maybe not change, I don't know. But what might be important for them to understand about the history of policing in America? I mean, sometimes we start with where we entered the conversation and there's there's a long history and legacy in terms of um, the interaction and policing, particularly in communities, communities of color.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, a couple points just building on what I was just talking about. There's a long history of police involvement in the denial of access of many people and, and in particular in this country, black people. Um, and access to um their rights as citizens, you know, whether we're talking about voting, um, whether we're talking about access to property, right? You know, their ability to actually buy property that they could afford <laughs> in 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 certain places, you know, their access to their 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 School. right to education. <laughs> right. Right. I mean all right. of all yeah. of these things, right? And it's and and people are 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 familiar i think with the ways in which private individuals prevented people of color you know whether we're talking about black people or brown people and you know i think importantly in, in your area area native peoples um access to all kinds of um of these what we're going to call civic goods people are used to you know we see the picture of um you know the the very poignant picture of of Young black women attempting to desegregate schools and then the, you know the picture of the you know white people, white women, you know, yelling and screaming at them. But important to understand that in, in many places, um, police played a role in, in supporting those people and blocking the access of, of people of color to, to these goods, right? Um, and that's that's an important part of the history. It's also an important part of the history that um, that when certain groups had were victimized by other individuals and they went to police and so on for help, you know, they they didn't get any help um, <laughs> in particular when they were victimized by, you know, by white people. So, you know, there's that piece of the the safety deprivation too. And so, you know, that side of the history um, supports the calls that some people have to say, well, if I don't feel safe, I need to call the police, Mm -hmm. you know, and and the police should respond, which of course they should, (laughs) If if, if you have been victimized and, you know, homicide should be cleared and, you know, investigations should be undertaken. Absolutely, that, that is Im- important to do. But I'm trying to make a bigger argument um, about just what the state's obligation is. And it's not just about what the police do or, or don't do. When the state makes proper investments, then people don't have to rely exclusively on this particular service that, that the state seems to only offer
1: you could argue whether or not people rely on it or have relied on it to begin with but certainly there's a response right there's a police response into community yes right because we both know people that have not called police when they were needed because yes. they were afraid whether or not right. it was around deportation or whether or not they had yes. someone in their home that was having a mental crisis and they ended up not calling because they were afraid and so it has been a challenging sort of history on both sides. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they haven't called because they were afraid or they haven't called because when they called in the past, they just didn't show up.
1: That, well, there's that.
0: Right. So if they didn't show up, then why should I call now? Um, So they're not showing up when I need you. Um, And then at the same time, when I'm out on the street, just, you know, minding my own business, you're bothering me about some BS. (laughs) I <laughs> when that I told you when broken broke in
1: my house, you weren't there, but you certainly can like pick on me. Uh.
0: Right, that kind of juxtaposition is really powerful. And, you know, it's interesting, like I said, we keep talking about police and it doesn't actually occur to people for, again, for understandable reasons, to say to the mayor, well, you know, if I'm not feeling safe right now, um, You know, the answer is, well, the police should come rather than I'm not feeling safe. And this city in California has a whole office of community based public safety, violence reduction strategies. Right. Where's that? I mean, I think policing is is an area of, of complete
1: interest right now in our city. But I have often thought about the push around policing here in our city, right, and and response. And that a lot of the activation has been around the Minneapolis Police Department and the city of Minneapolis, right, under the mayor. And I'm thinking, but so many of the services around public safety actually don't sit in either one of those places. And so I don't understand comprehensive safety plan, why we're not broadening the conversation to include the other actors, including the nonprofit sector, the whole ecosystem of safety and yes. to plan it out because there's no amount of the city budget that can get us to what I think we're actually trying to respond to.
0: 100. So we are actually in
1: complete agreement.
0: Yes, you were the person who taught me this I, about your particular setup. Um, it's such a wonderful example, right, where people would say we think there should be more mental health services in the city, and we think that the police budget should be reduced so that we can have more mental health services. And if I get this right, you told me, but wait a minute, that's actually provided at the county level. I don't even know how the county is funded (laughs) in Minneapolis in contrast to the city, but I do know that their budgets are different, their tax structures are different, and it's not possible right, to just reduce a city's budget and give it to the county. Like it just doesn't work that way, right? Um, And so then, you know, some people's response might be, well, okay, let's just reduce the city's police budget and start mental health at the city. But when you think about it, well, why would you do that? And do you know how much it actually costs to establish this? And, you know, these people who do this work are you know our state workers who you know get paid a very decent salary and have pensions and so on like you are talking about an immense a pretty well maybe not immense but a very substantial mm-hmm. amount of money so this is the kind of thing that i was talking about at the front end chanda where it's like right. a lot of the details of the of the infrastructure and the policy are kind of beyond the ken you know, the ordinary person who's interested in this problem, who's fired up um, about this problem, these details are kind of they're certainly wonky and to a lot of people are kind of boring, but they're so, so important. Like, you know, you know, the idea that you would sit people down and say, look, if we're gonna make headway on this, you need to understand city budgets, you need to understand county budgets. You actually need to, you know, read the Minneapolis, not the Minneapolis, you need to read the Minnesota state constitution so that you actually understand all of the various departments of state so that you understand who has what money when. I mean, it's, I have a colleague who teaches this at, at the law school. State and local government is incredibly complex and hard. Um, and then you overlay on that, all of that. Um, federal constitutional law, because that matters too, right? Because this is ultimately kind of a federalism problem. A lot of the resources that the state gets, they get from the federal government too. This is hard stuff.
1: It is hard stuff. You were on uh, President Obama's task force for 21st
0: century policing. Yes. Was that effective? Here's what I can say. We had a few goals, one of which was to come up with a set of reforms that were low hanging, that we felt any policing agency could do, that at a minimum would make what the police service as it exists today less harmful and more accountable. I think those recommendations were consistent with that. I think any city that adopted those recommendations actually really did adopt them (laughs) would move forward in that project. And I think we also thought that our our first pillar that focused on legitimacy and and trust, that was kind of the organizing principle, was the basis for more fulsome change. Because to my mind, you know, it didn't require to think about the trust and legitimacy piece of it didn't require that the policing service exists exactly the way it does now. And then you just have more trust in it. <laughs> it's that mm-hmm. if you understand that that's your goal, then how the policing service carries out its tasks, even how it's organized would have to be fundamentally different if it's going to meet the communities that they served in the way that they need to be served in order to have trust right
1: well I mean it wasn't really. I mean it's not really a completely fair question in the way that I asked it but I mean I think it was effective in the in the sense that I think it elevated the issue that more trust needed to be built and something needed to change it certainly made it made many of us that were not paying attention to pay attention differently to issues of policing and I think that was extremely effective
0: yeah but I you know in in terms of was it effective i mean remember we do it and then 2 years later donald trump is president yeah for 4 years <laughs> right right in a world in which if real transformation is going to take place remember we were just having this whole conversation about budgeting and so on you need real resources you need serious technical assistance that didn't happen in those 4 years at all mm-hmm. if, if in fact quite the, the contrary opposite serious retrenchment Mm -hmm. so if anything did happen on those recommendations they happened piecemeal city to city in certain states not others with only the resources that those states happened to have because the federal government wasn't giving any resources for for that kind of for that kind of change and also the the idea that we were going to like you know, turn the aircraft carrier around (laughs) in two years is just like, you know, have you seen public schools lately? (laughs) You know,
1: I mean, this is a super important point, though, because there's a lot of urgency that is sitting in our city and across our state and across many states that are saying we can't lose any more lives. We need to make change right now. And it goes back to the point of sort of these, I, I don't quite want to call them knee jerk, but like these very rapid responses um, and pressure and, and politicians that are moving very quickly. And it's not, in fact, building additional trust or confidence in the system. I actually think it's eroding it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Even more. Would, of course, when something major like that happens, there is a demand for a response. We're back in the emergency room. But it's, it's interesting to meet the emergency room with what you stated before, Chanda, which is we can't lose another person, right? Mm-hmm. If you went to the emergency room and you told an emergency room doctor, you know, do, do what you can to save this life that's right here in front of you, but we can't lose another person. The emergency room doctor would look at you and be like, wait, what? you know all i can do is do the thing that's in front of me my job is actually not <laughs> to go out there and make sure that we don't lose another person that's mm-hmm. that's an entirely different project right and i think if what people need to understand while they are reacting understandably to these these tragic incidents is that you got to do what you can in the moment, but you have to be working at like five different levels at one time. You have to. I think conversations that don't allow the possibility of working at five different levels, right, for addressing the emergency, trying to do something that's, you know, two steps in front of the emergency, You know, Coming up with a specialized strategy to make whatever we're doing that's creating the emergency less harmful, while also at the same time trying to rebuild the system, the plane while we're flying it. If you can't do all of that at one time, then right, we're going to fail. I think we can do it all (laughs) at at one time. I think we have to, um, but that is the way you have to think about it.
1: Yeah. One of the other questions. So no, not warrants. We've talked about the other one is around early intervention around and police accountability, right? Police accountability and sort of the early warning signs of of officers, right? So we know that it's not all officers. I just want to say it. You know, I have family members that are police officers. I've said that before on this podcast. I actually worry quite a bit about them and it probably goes to my earlier point of feeling conflicted um, because I have people that I love on the force and I have people that aren't family that are on the force that I have a great deal of respect for. But is there any data or anything notable that we should understand in terms of police accountability?
0: Yeah, I'll say two things. Um, One about early warning and then one about when you say accountability, right? So there's some data showing that early warning systems can be helpful. But of course, almost all of those systems are operating with a group of people who are in the job (laughs) as they are right now, trained as they are right now, selected in whatever way they are right now you know, being tipped off, having their supervisors being tipped off to things that they're doing, usually around, uh, you know, a lot of the tip-offs are, are really centered in officer safety and wellness questions, right? Like, you know, is, is this person involved in a domestic violence incident? You uh, know, in a lot of early warning around drinking and, and so on, right? There There are things that we can do. But even that is focusing on an individual, using that individual's behavior and trying to address the individual's issue without addressing the context in which that individual sits that often is contributing to whatever the issue that we have, right? Like if you wanted to be serious about, much more serious about early morning, you would address it in recruitment and you would have fundamentally different recruitment mechanism. So I'm actually a commissioner on the New Haven Board of Police Commissioners. And right now, we are trying to address how we evaluate new officers. We have a psychological, Connecticut Post requires that each potential applicant undergo a psychological evaluation. And, And the tests that the psychologists use primarily, if you look at the instruments, are looking at like whether the person is psychotic, (laughs) literally. I mean, you look at the questions and then the psychologist will give us some evaluation of like whether or not the person can be a good officer in terms of their ability to follow orders. You're just like, okay. So right there, you are conceiving of the kind of officer that actually I don't think is appropriate for our agency, if you match up our mission statement, because New Haven has a mission statement that expects people to be community oriented, expects them to be able to deal with diverse populations and so on. You know, my question to the psychologist will be, well, what instruments are you using to detect that person's ability to have those kinds of skills? Because I don't see it. You know, are you asking them to undergo an implicit bias assessment test? Are you asking them to undergo a social dominance orientation test? These are validated instruments in social psychology that that could be used, right? But when you're talking about early warning, you're talking about a group of people that have already passed a certain set of tests that aren't even necessarily the best test to identify the group of people that you want.
1: that's fair. And I think we have the same system here. And as a matter of fact, I think they only have to undergo that testing upon hiring and they don't have to do it again, unless they're involved with a critical incident, which is also problematic.
0: Right. Now, in our case, we just rewrote all of our um, things to make that they have to actually undergo an assessment every 18 months. So, you know, there are things that we can do, but again, those assessments wouldn't screen people out it wouldn't be sort of a year later, oh wait, we messed up, you don't have a job. It would be more consistent with your early warning system. So that's you know the first piece of it. One answer, the short form of that answer would be to say, well, if we really cared about early warning systems, we would do it early <laughs> and make sure that you know those people don't ever get into the job and that we're actually screening in a different set of people with the kinds of skills that we need to actually interact with the populations in question. Now your question about accountability. And for a lot of people, accountability has to do with what we started our conversation with at the outset of the podcast. Accountability, when you've done something wrong, is there like a judicial, something like a judicial assessment about blaming the person, you know, about in in the criminal context, they. Are criminally adjudicated, or in the employment context, they lose their job or they're suspended, or something like that. But there's a different way of thinking about accountability that's more continuous and ongoing. You know, it's the kind of accountability you have in the day to day with a supervisor who actually pays attention to. What you're doing uh, on the day to day, and making sure that if you do a bad job, that you get appropriate training. There's an accountability that is about constant training to uh, assure that you know how to do your job, that you're expert in what you need to do. You know that if you're going to be faced with a new task, that you have the right training and an opportunity to practice it before you go out. And, um, and interact with people. You can call that a form of accountability too, right? Body can. There's all this
1: footage of how people are interacting. And, and my question has been, are you using it as Correct. a training opportunity? Right. Because you. you can actually go and look when there's a complaint and say, okay, well, maybe it doesn't come to this level, but what about this interaction could have been different?
0: Correct. And you don't even have to wait for the complaint. With all the body camera, there should be constant auditing. There should be like once a week, we're going to take a snippet of somebody's body camera and we're all going to sit around and we're going to assess whether that was good, what was good about it, what was bad about it. Like, you know, constant learning, I think, is also a a form of accountability. But uh, people aren't used to really thinking about um, accountability in that way—it's often very retrospective, incident-focused, rather than forward-looking. You know, constant course correction. I will say, and this will, might be controversial, but you know, who does a pretty decent job of the the of the kind of accountability that I was talking about with the constant training and so on? The military. Hmm. Military is pretty good at that. Deeply ironic ways. You know there are, there there is a sense in which um, the policing service as we know it today could be improved by um, by actually I, I'm I'm being intentionally provocative right now but yeah. by being um, militarized right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I hear you. And I feel like I've read even that some of the officers that have military backgrounds tend to do better in response. I feel like I've read that somewhere.
0: I don't know if that's true. And and and, and in making this argument about, you know, learning from the way the military does it, I, I actually don't mean to necessarily be saying we should be giving people extra points who are in the military. It's just that the military oh, yeah. has a particular model of doing it. Now, A lot of that, of course, is about resources. The military has tons of resources to do that, right? Um, And so then there's also a question of, do we wanna spend all of our, does the state wanna spend all of its resources training armed first responders to do all of these different jobs? Or does the state need to actually develop different Agencies and different individuals to respond to different problems, you know, with mm-hmm. forms of expertise. Because there's no reason why it has to be the police that, as we know it, engaging in all these responses. I do believe that it needs to be the state, however, or that the state yeah. needs to pay for it.
1: Just in terms of progress, and I'm yeah. I'm making an assumption that this is progress. But in terms of action, how about I said that in terms of actions that have been taken can you say anything about the number of states that have made legislative changes and um, whether or not those have been affected?
0: Okay, let me, I'll try to do this from memory. If you go to the National Council of State Legislatures, there's a, you can go to that website and you can actually look at all of the different kinds of legislation that are either pending or passed. So when I started out at the front end of the of our conversation I said there have been you know 25 states that have that have passed some number uh, some different kinds of legislation the three most popular types if you will are legislation around use of force and bans on certain kinds of activities like chokeholds and neck restraints which clearly follows from the incident in your state yeah A bunch of states have passed legislation about um, the duty to intervene, often in connection with the use of force, again, because of the failure of the officers who are now on trial. A third very prominent issue around legislation is about decertification. So that if you have engaged in some kind of particularly egregious behavior are separated from the the agency that you worked with, Um, they want to decertify them and then make sure that other jurisdictions know that you've been decertified. And then there's legislation that prevents states from recertifying somebody who's been decertified, because there's this problem called the wandering officer, where people are fired, but they're not decertified, and they just go to another jurisdiction and get hired. And in some places, this has happened again and again.
1: And then these behaviors are, you know, misconduct. Uh, does it include lying? And yes. you know, it includes those types of behaviors.
0: Yep. And it, it includes even things like being under investigation for misconduct and resigning in the middle of the investigation so that there's no finding against you. But then you can like at least in Connecticut, you can be decertified for that. So roughly about 25 states, as I said before. Northeast mostly, some around the Great Lakes. Um, There was pending legislation in Ohio and Michigan that didn't get passed. Um, Y'all passed, Minnesota passed legislation. There's some in the West, basically nothing in the South and in those middle states in the West. Now, then you asked about whether it's effective. Well, in a lot of cases, the legislation was just passed. So it depends on what we're talking about. In terms of effective, like is it making a difference in terms of incidents of use of force or are people actually intervening more? You know, are we seeing some impact on, on the decertification? I think, in large part, right now it's too early to tell. But one thing is really important here, which is if you look at some of this legislation, it doesn't necessarily build in an infrastructure, as we were discussing before, to even assess the possibility of effectiveness. So if the agencies who are that are subject to the new use of force legislation are not required to very explicitly document all of their uses of force and then report it to some central agency in the state, then there would be no real possibility of some that state agency, whatever the state agency is, auditing that municipal agency to see Um, whether and how their use of force practices have changed, right? I mean, you know, one really big issue we have in in assessing the extent to which there has been any change in policing practices is that we live in a data-free zone. Say more about that because, say, just say a little bit about that. Yeah, Um, so we live in a data-free zone. So, like, when people talk about police Killing people and the numbers of those deaths and so on. You know the data source that folks commonly refer to is um, our, our journalistic databases. You know people used to look at um, after Michael Brown was killed. Um, you know they would go to the Washington Post. There, are, you know, these different organizations that collect information basically based on combing through public accounts in newspapers. That is not the same as having a set of official statistics about, about these in the same way that we actually have official statistics about homicide.
1: You know, in our state, we don't collect data on officers that have been involved in deadly incidents, critical incidents.
0: It's not collect- correct. So, if it's not collected, and it's certainly not collected at the state level after there have been these legislative changes, how would it be possible to assess seriously? seriously assess whether these legislative changes have been effective. And then the sad thing is, which brings us back to where we started, people will know that there have been these legislative changes. And then there's another police killing, you know, in a context in which um, the officer has engaged in some strategy that the news has just publicized as prohibited. And so people are like, what the hell? You know, how is this possible that if it's banned, that it still happens?
1: I mean, for some of us, for some folks, that's what they said. And for some other people it felt predictable because we've been told a lot of things and it shows back up. And I think the unfortunate thing is that there's many of us that are working to do and make change and we're undermining our own progress here. And I think it goes to your point of the layers that's yeah. required right, that we can't take these steps forward and 20 steps backwards. And, you know, you have to be able to inspect what you expect. You can't just say it and declare it publicly and not have
0: any built-in accountabilities around is it happening or not. It's not enough to just ban something. You have to build an infrastructure to detect what you've banned, assess what you've and then build an infrastructure to respond to those bans. And by and large, what we see in the legislation is only step one.
1: The other stuff is hard. (laughs) It is hard. And the other stuff is in public and it's not. It's wonky. People think it's boring. It's wonky. People think it's boring. That's why we're glad we have you.
0: (laughs) But it's it's actually one of the most important things to have happen, building the infrastructure if you actually care about making a difference.
1: Well, I'm glad to see you smiling in the midst of all of this. Do you feel hopeful about our future around public safety?
0: I think there've been a lot of changes. Um not as fast as a lot of people want, not as fast as as I want, but you know, when I look at today compared to 5 6 years ago, given that the intervening period of 4 years was, you know, the wilderness. <laughs> I think it's hard not to be um, somewhat optimistic. I'm, I'm not nearly as, you know, I I wish the current administration was further along than it is right now. But you know, I I try to give some greats because COVID is a lot. It is
1: a lot, and I think you know sometimes we we feel like if it's not on the news or on social media, it's not happening. Right. And I think it's important for people to to hear you say because you are so critical in this space and and your expertise is limited, you know, across this country that you see it improving. And, you know, just because I don't know everything doesn't mean that nothing is happening. And yet we know more needs to happen. And so I'm 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 I am thrilled to hear you say that because it could feel pretty daunting here in Minnesota.
0: Yeah, well, and uh, for a good reason, because all of these incidents keep happening. But you know, I I guess it's also the case to say, just because these horribly tragic, awful, um, unwarranted (laughs) incidents occur also doesn't mean that we aren't making progress, because I think we are, certainly nationally. I can't speak to what's happening on the ground in Minneapolis. I appreciate you. Me too, and I can't wait to see you in April. And that's Tracy Mears and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. If you love what you hear, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, and Darlin Benjamin. This is Sue Pak-Kinitz. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.